What's going on guys? Welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Van Chats. My name is John Kroom and I'm really excited about this week's episode because this guest is somebody that I've looked up to. This guest is somebody that has inspired me to do different things in the sport of cycling and that guest is Gus Morton. Uh, if you don't know who Gus Morton is and who the Morton brothers are, they have put together this series called Thereabouts, The Outskirts, and all these adventure bikepacking series, which just honestly gives you a new outlook on cycling and, and pretty much just the sport in general. Along the way in some of these trips, they meet some of the best characters on the road and create these relationships and honestly get to know these people for who they are as people, which is really huge because that's kind of what I want this podcast to be. I want this podcast to be a place where these athletes get to kind of share their true selves, uh, get to chat about themselves and not just tell me about their watts per kilogram or you know what what they eat for breakfast in the morning and all that crazy stuff. I really just want to get to know the athlete and just kind of have like a phone conversation. And so luckily I got to do that with Gus Morton and yeah, it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. And if you haven't already, please go check out his podcast, which is the Physio Podcast, which is done with Bobby Ulick. And they chat with some of the best athletes in the world. So be sure to check that out. That's through Velo News. Uh, but yeah, so let's let's just go ahead and dive into this episode because it's a good one. This episode is brought to you by Spot. Guys, I've crashed way more times than I would like to admit, but it wasn't until recently when I was without health insurance that the crash really affected my life. I got stuck with a $5,000 medical bill because I had a deductible with the secondary insurance that I was using, which is a long, long, crazy story. But anyways, long story short, I was stuck with a $5,000 medical bill because that was the deductible. And honestly, if I knew about Spot, I would have totally been covered. Spot has no deductible and is a monthly subscription and can be canceled at any time. Spot works with you whether you have health insurance or not. While Spot works with and covers many cyclists and mountain bikers, Spot policy covers you 24-7 worldwide. Whether you're ripping a crit, skiing a black diamond, chopping your food up in the kitchen, or even hiking Mount Everest. And which is great because I just bought a pair of skis and I'm on my way to head out to the mountains and luckily I will be covered by Spot this go around. So anyways, if you guys wanna check out more about Spot, all you have to do is go to croom.getspot.com. That is croom.getspot.com. That's C-R-O-O-M dot getspot.com. You could also just check them out in the link in the description below. And uh, yeah, let's get back to the episode. This episode is also brought to you by Bike Hardcore. Guys, I am tired of seeing you with dirty bikes and Christmas is right around the corner, so go ahead and get that stocking stuffer for your family member, your friend, or even yourself. Um, just go ahead and clean your bike up and make sure it's ready to roll. And you can do that with Bike Hardcore. All you have to do is go to www.bikehardcore.com, use code CREW at checkout and get 10% off your first order, or you can use the link in the bio, drop your email, and you'll be entered to win a holiday bundle from Bike Hardcore. And it's for free. We'll ship it straight to you the day after Christmas. It's like the Christmas that keeps on giving, and you'll have a clean bike. So be sure to enter that contest. All you have to do is go to the link in the description below, drop your email, or to save time, just go ahead and go to bikehardcore.com and use code CREW at checkout. Let's dive into the episode. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Van Chats. I'm sitting here with Angus Morton, otherwise known as Gus Morton. Uh, he is the founder or co-founder, I guess, of Thereabouts and is a part of the Physio Podcast, Put Your Socks On with Velo News and Bobby Ulick. And yeah, Gus, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, John. Thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, yeah. So you're in Colorado right now, right? I am. Yeah, Boulder, Colorado is yeah. uh, is home base. You guys, you guys getting dumped on the snow right about now? I'm no, sure. we're not actually. Unfortunately, really? um, no, we're not. We've had <sighs> it's threatening, uh, but we haven't had any substantial snow. I uh, I've, I've recently gotten into into skiing um, oh, yeah. and and like ski mountaineering, and uh, and so I'm hanging. To, to be able to get up in the mountains and do some some proper skiing and this sort of the snow's been pretty abysmal thus far so I'm praying for snow right on yeah I'm in I'm in the springs it's it's funny how how the weather works in Colorado and like some parts it's super sunny it's rideable other parts it's like six inches of snow but it, it, it can be wild it can be all over the place especially around this time but uh yeah, totally. but anyways, uh let's dive into it man I I, I really want to get to know where where the cycling passion even comes from I mean for many people that that know you and, and your brother, I mean, it, there's more to cycling than just the bike. Like, I mean, you guys have made this as cliche as it sounds a lifestyle. I mean, it's uh, it's, it's a part of your guys's life and it'll always be a part of your life. It doesn't seem like it was ever a job. So where does the passion even stem from? Where does it come from and how did it all start? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> sorry. No, you're good. Um, so, I grew Lock and I, uh, my family, we grew up um, on a on a small farm on a river on the uh, mid north coast, uh, east coast of of Australia, uh, in New South Wales, a place called Port Macquarie. And um, and Dad was big into motor racing. Um, had had been kind of you know pre pre um, birth of his children, and uh, and so you know we kind of inherited that. Um, from birth. Uh, one of my earliest memories uh, is of, of, of dad waking me up at two o'clock in the morning to let me know that Ant and Senna had, had been killed in a, in a, in a motor racing accident because I was, you know, I was, I was in love with him and I would have been, wow. I think that was, um, you know, I mean, that was early nineties, right? So I was sort of three or four years of age probably. Um, so, you know, like it was, it was in, in our blood. Um, and, you know, dad was, uh, we had family friends <clears throat> lived down the, the road, um, who were there, they were a motor racing family as well. And, um, and so, you know, they got motorbikes and, and the older brother was a couple of years older. And so he sort of got a motorbike at like, you know, five or six years of age. And so then I got a motorbike at the same time. So I was sort of on a motorbike at like four years of age, racing around on the motorbike and those motorbikes gradually got bigger and we got faster and, you know, we, we sort of moved into the farm truck and we were rallying the farm truck around. And I guess it got to a point um, where we just had a few too many accidents <laughs> and, uh, and we would do, we'd, we'd kind of, we're progressing into the go-karts. We're going to go and in, move into go-karts and start racing go-karts at, at sort of eight years of age. And uh, obviously the parents, um, you know, had some sort of a meeting and they were like, there's no way the boys should be, racing go-karts together they'll kill themselves and so they decided to stagger us a year apart and that meant that we um uh, or me like i had to sit a year out from from being able to race like ride my motorbike or or you know race go-karts and i'd seen myself as being a formula one driver at you know at that at that point like that's what i was going to be and and i was as i said obsessed with with cars and everything we 
I didn't and thought about was, was cars. And, and so I had no motorbike. I had, wasn't getting a go-kart. I, and you know, like I was like, well, like, what can I do? <laughs> and, uh, and at least the way it works in my mind, um, how this plays out, which, you know, it's probably not quite as compressed as this, but I sort of remember dad basically explaining to me that we weren't, I wasn't going to get a go-kart that year and I was going to have to sit it out um, for the nine months or something. And, um, and I sort of turned around, it was on a Saturday morning and, and there on the TV, uh, on the TV station, SBS, which is sort of like a semi-public um, te- television station in, in Australia was an ad for the Tour de France. Um, and it was, you know, all of the colors of the Peloton racing by, you know, these beautiful mountain vistas and they were going fast. They looked like they were going like quite fast. And I sort of was like, I looked at it and I was like, damn, like they look like they're going pretty quick. I've got a bike underneath the house. Maybe, maybe I can go as quick. And so I, you know, went downstairs, got on this old Melbourne star, you know, chromoly. Uh, it was like a, it was like a, uh, a metallic red uh, color and uh, had this kind of like almost like vein kind of graphic, like lava kind of graphic things on it. And I, uh, I, I went out in front of the house onto the street and I sprinted down the road and uh, I sprinted, 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 sprinted and then coasted and was kind of like, oh yeah, like I nearly get that sense of like it was on the motorbike, right? I nearly get, I kind of get that sense of speed. And then I turned around and sprinted back and that was that. I, I sort of decided then and there that, you know what, I can kind of get a kick out of going quick on a, on a pedal bike and that's going to have to do. And then for whatever reason, it was sort of like, well, let's ride it down to the dirt. I lived on a, on, a, on an island and so it was kind of a bridge and then there was a dirt road, maybe a mile and a half down and so I'd ride down to the dirt road and back and then it progressed further and further. And, and then uh, a year passed and dad was like, do you want to get your go-kart and start go-kart racing? And I said, well, can I get a racing bike and start racing? And he was like, sure. Uh, and, and yeah, the rest is history as they say. <laughs> wow. And then I guess, I guess Lachlan had to follow form, huh? And so, right. and so that kind of folds us into like, I'm even, cause we're going to come back to, to your, your kind of your cycling career, but it, it folds into kind of thereabouts. Like, I mean, I love the, the analogy of just, you know, yeah, I rode to a dirt road and then all of a sudden I went past the dirt road and went further. Um, mm. And so, so thereabouts, where, where does that even come from? And, and had you and Lachlan been planning that even pre, you know, you guys being professional on the bike? Not at all. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, to, to give you like the background on thereabouts, um, I guess it probably kicked off um, like an idea uh, that was started with Lockie uh, in, um, I don't know, maybe like July of 2013. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier than that. He, he was in Europe racing his first season on the world tour. He was like 21 years old. Um, and you know, he'd been taking a beating over there and was, you know, he was, he was just, you know, trying to fit in, I guess, and, and get the hang of it and was sort of like, um, I think sort of having a bit of a, a, a tough time and 
kind of reached out to me and was like, you know, oh, we should, we should do like a bike, a bike trip together at the end of the year. And, uh, you know, um, and where we just, you know, we just like ride. And at first it was in Thailand. He's like, there's these mountains in Thailand. We could do this big mountain ride. And I was sort of like, I hadn't, I'd stopped racing at 21. So I was 23 at this time. Um, I was, uh, working in, in TV. I was directing my first, um, TV show, uh, a TV show called the hamster wheel, which was a political satire. Um, sketch comedy show and I was one of the, the sketch directors on it. And, uh, and I was sort of like, you know, again, hadn't touched the bike, hadn't done any real exercise <laughs> for, for several years. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I was like the only, my, my association with like traveling by bike was middle-aged German cyclo tourists. Um, you know, it wasn't something that was exciting. It wasn't something that was sort of fast and nimble. It was this very slow, labored process you know you wear daggy clothes and flappy hats and you've got these great big ugly panniers on your bikes and you know you're a very upright position all that sort of stuff so I was sort of like I couldn't really wrap my head around it and uh a few months passed Lockie reached out again and was like we should do this trip you know let's do it let's do it in Australia you know and he'd had a really successful season you know he'd worn the leaders jersey at the tour of Colorado for several days same thing at the tour of Utah. I think he'd want a stage at the tour of Utah. So like, you know, he was having a, a breakout year, um, but was still not totally, you know, hadn't found his place in, in the world tour and was still kind of a restless soul, I guess. And, and I was sort of feeling a little bit the same doing what I was doing, you know, um, in, in making television. And I didn't really have an outlet for creativity, um, unfettered you know being able to do my own thing my own way right and and so he sort of was like well let's ride across australia like let's ride to uluru um which is which is the center of australia and uh and i you know tv works contract work so usually you've got the month of christmas off and i was like well i've got december off um i was coming back from the states coming back from the u.s and i was like let's let's do it. And uh, anyway, and not really, really, not really necessarily thinking about it, but sort of like, you know, I probably should get on the bike and do something yeah. physical and kind of get a bit healthy. I hadn't been living a very healthy lifestyle <laughs> or much of uh, much of moderation. And, um, and so I, uh, yeah, I came back and the, the day I landed, we went for a, a ride. I was on, I think I was on like maybe, maybe his Cervelo or something or other. I was on anyway, we went for a, a training ride and it was two hours long and I went the worst hunger flat I've ever <laughs> gone in my life. Anyone who knows like a bonking. Oh, man. Um, and dude, I, it was like an hour in and I was like completely destroyed and yeah. I was sort of like, Oh my God. Uh, and that was the, yeah, that was the start. And then we did, um, excuse me. Uh, that was the start. And then we did a, um, we trained for like a month and we sort of built up to like doing four or five hour days. And I started getting going, getting moving. And then uh, about a week sort of 10 days before we had like vaguely planned on doing, doing the trip. We, uh, we said, well, like, let's actually do it. And, you know, contacted uh, a guy that, that Lockie had 
had worked with that sort of would do his motor pacing and, and massage and bits and pieces, his kind of fixer. And uh, so we contacted him and, and was like, you know, would you sort of take two weeks and drive us, you know, drive a car with us while we ride to Uluru? And he was sort of like, I, don't know, I guess so. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah. And then uh, a couple of days before we set off, you know, I, my motivation to do the trip was I wanted to shoot um, a series of a, a portrait, a portrait book um, where you would photograph um, all these different characters that you meet out on the road um, and then, and then just do, you know, 250 words um, on them and, yeah. and the bikers that sort of, so like that was kind of my thinking and, uh, and Lockie was like, we just wanted to have an adventure. And then, uh, and then, you know, right before we sort of left, we're like, well, if we film a little bit, if we can cut together, like, you know, a minute long piece of like, you know, great visuals and just like, a, you know, a, a cool soundtrack, maybe we can like get some flights from like a sponsor, like Savella or someone that, you know, like he was on, on Garmin Sharp at the time or Garmin or someone. And we can like maybe do more of these trips and we don't have to pay for them. It was wow. sort of the thinking. That's kind of funny from you just saying that it's like, yeah, maybe if we just put together a minute film and now you have like three of them at what? 45 yeah. minutes a piece. <laughs> so it's a, it's a production in itself. So it's kind of funny to talk about, but let, let's dive back into your, like into your cycling career. Like you, you rode with Drag Pack development team and it looks like you, it looks like you pretty much stayed with the same team. Like when you went pro, um, the, at least the first time around. Um, yeah. <clears throat> why was that? And then why did you, why did you stop? Like why, why, why so, did you shut it down? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I, um, uh, went to the junior world championships as a first year junior. So like 16, 17 years of age and, and you do a European kind of tour and then you do the worlds. And, um, and I'd been racing in the States prior to that and, and had done well, did, did well in Europe. Um, crashed out of the worlds, but had done well in races on the lead up to that and um, came home and was kind of like started to build up again for the next season. But I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't feeling the pressure of, of <clears throat> being at that world's level. And anyway, long story short, I like took myself out of contention for the national team. Um, and, you know, I sort of said, like, I don't want to go. I would rather do school and sort of figure out my, my own sort of shit. Um, I ended up going to those selection races and doing well. And, and, and I had a, a pretty good season uh, anyway, a good season in the U S um, and, and then raced as a stagiaire with the Drapak Porsche um, team at the end of the season and got, got some good results in the open races, yeah. uh, a couple of top fives and, um, and some sort of anyway. And, uh, and, it had always been my dream at the time. There was a team called uh, SouthAustralia.com, which was the Australian Institute of Sport. Mm -hmm. uh, and they had a development team. And this was sort of the era of, um, I was the same, same age or a year younger than like Cam Meyer. There was uh, Travis is it, Meyer, is it, Aubrey. Was it more track-based back then? It was, it was track. Yeah, yeah, it was more track-based because Australia had won, like the funding structure was basically like in, in Australian sport, um, was sort of like, what have we got the best chance of winning medals at? Mm -hmm. Let's put money towards those. And it was sort of based off of the previous Olympics. 
Olympic cycle. And so cycling, we'd done typically quite well in cycling since the early nineties. Um, and you know, um, like Brownie O'Grady, um, Roberts, like, you know, um, Steve Aldridge, all of these really cool bike riders had come through before and paved the way anyway. So that was, it was a predominantly, predominantly track based program. And, and, and to be honest, like I, I really hated the track. I raced it. Um, and you know, have had done well, won national medals and bits and pieces, um, at that level, but I really just didn't enjoy the track. My heart was set on, on the road. Um, anyway, so I really had my heart set on making, on, on making that team. Um, and anyway, at coming towards the end of my junior year, I was about to go into the under 23s and, um, and Drapak, um, Michael Drapak uh, approached me. Um, and, and at the time my parents ran a, a junior development program where they would, uh, there was about, I think it was about seven or so under 17s, under 15s, and under 17s, um, on the team and they would give them bikes. They would sort of take them to races and they also would give them, um, a, a six week, um, program in the U S where the, the program was kind of focused on teaching these kids how to be self-sufficient. So, you know, they would rent a house for the team in the U S and they would go like, there's the race program, you know, here's your weekly budget for food. Um, the house needs to be clean. You obviously need to be fed and you need to be entered and, organized to get to these races and so and then on top of that you had to stay on top of your school um and so it was really this program it was amazing amazing program we all lived in this house everyone had you know you'd cook for three days and then you would do the washing for three days and then you would do the cleaning of the house for three days and you would sort of rotate and you would have to enter and organize and select as a team which races you were going to do and you know training what training everyone was doing there was like a time to leave all this sort of stuff so it was really you know a really uh, amazing program. It taught you a lot of independence. Um, I also, think, I also think ultimately like it led, a little, it led a lot of people to decide that maybe being a professional athlete wasn't exactly what they wanted and that they became more interested in, in their school and these other pursuits. Um, which is not a bad that, thing. Yeah. Which is not at all, not at all. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so Michael had some young kids on, on the Drapak team, Tom Palmer, um, Sarah Kent, who were world champions. And needed a place to kind of put them because they weren't old enough to be in the world team. Um, and anyway, so long story short, realizing kids and, and, and Drapak kind of joined forces and, and took on a bunch of their young athletes and would take them to the US and would kind of run that more, more development focused program that was more on, you know, shaping you as a human being and teaching you independence and, and um, work ethic planning all of that sort of like organizational skills, that sort of thing. Uh, anyway, so there was like an offer for me to go and, and race with, with Drapak. I would earn a salary. Um, part of the conditions of, of that program was that I would have to go to university, um, which I had been, you know, I'd left school uh, full-time to, to do it part-time via distance education or homeschool um, in order to race. <clears throat> so for all the athletes? No, this is just, this is just you. what I've done. Cause I got kicked out of school. Um, okay. I got kicked out of school cause I just didn't go. Uh, yeah. Cause I was just training all the time. And, um, <laughs> and, and I didn't really care about school to be honest. Yeah. Like it was something that, you know, like I'd always succeeded at um, when they kicked me out of school, I was at the top of the grade. Um, 
in in you know a couple of subjects and was in in that top sort of twenty percent. So anyway, so it was I I was like, well, I'm getting the grades. Why? Why do you need to kick me out? Yeah. Uh, anyway, so as a defiance, I said, well, fuck you, and I left and was doing homeschool. So you're not really learning uh, with homeschool, to be <laughs> honest. And yeah. anyway, so the thought of going to university was like something mum and dad had always said that I had to do, but it didn't necessarily excite me um, at, at the time. And then there was, and then South Australia, the AIS also gave me uh, an, an offer and the AIS had more success in trans, translating, you know, these under 23 athletes into world tour athletes. Um, and they had a, a more European based program. So in my mind, that was sort of the program that I had always had my heart set on and, and really, really wanted to do. But at the same time, all of a sudden there's Michael Drapak coming along and he's sort of like, there's more to life than bike riding. Not only that, but like, you know, he's all this really interesting, um, you know, groundbreaking kind of science on nutrition and like mental health and like all of these, and all of a sudden I was becoming interested in, in all of these other elements that were kind of performance, I guess like rooted in performance, but, but also to innovation and, and also to just in, in academia. Um, anyway, so like long story short, it was like a do or die kind of moment. I needed to make the decision. It was, it was the morning before um, a bike race called the Sydney to, um, no, the, the Goulburn to Sydney, it was a big bike race in Australia. Um, and I said, no, I'm going to go with Drapak. I was stagiaring with Drapak. I was like in the hotel with Drapak and like my coach is on the phone to like the AIS and they're like trying oh, wow. to negotiate this thing. And uh, anyway, I, I went with Drapak. I ended up, we won that race that day with, with, um, with Robbie Williams, um, uh, who is an incredible bike rider, incredible human being. Um, and, uh, and I, I was 12 or something, but I was caught very close to the finish line. I was in the break with Robbie and um, so I had a really good result. Went on, um, signed with Drapak, did my first race, first race as a, as a professional, sort of full-time with them was the Tour of Qatar. And um, that was like a major learning curve. Um, you know, crosswinds, you're racing, um, you know, Tom Boone and Mark Cavendish, all of these exceptional bike riders. And, uh, and, you know, my experience of crosswinds was Belgium as a junior. And that's not at all what it's like when you race with the big boys. Um, but it was awesome. And, you know, I eked out a few kind of semi good results there in terms of just, you know, being in that front group when that front group was, you know, 30 guys or, or so. And, and, um, and so that was, you know, that was encouraging. And then, and then following that race, I went to a race called the tour of Taiwan, got a parasite, got super, super sick, got pneumonia and didn't really recover from that for the rest of the season they couldn't really work out what was wrong with me and so that was the first experience where you know i'd kind of um i guess gone gone into uh into this team i thought you know yeah i'm going to progress yada yada and and then all of a sudden like you know i just couldn't get out of my own way yeah. um and so that made me start thinking about school and uh and like you know what I was going to do with, with that. Um, and that kind of led me to, you know, 
like where, where am I going to go to university and, and what am I going to do here? And, and, uh, and so I sort of like, I didn't really get many options when it came to, to getting into school. Um, and, you know, I actually sat my final exams for school. I don't know what they're called here in the U S is it maybe SATs. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it's sort of what qualifies you for college. I actually sat, uh, one of those exams, I had to get like a special order and I sat at the morning before the Herald Sun tour, uh, time trial. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and so I had like, I sat it in the morning. My time trial start time was like 2 PM. The exam was from, from, uh, like nine until 11 or, or 10 until 12 or something. And, um, and so I did that and then I got like a police escort from the school where I sat the exam, um, to the race, warmed up, raced the race. Morton. Yeah. yeah. So like it was, it was, um, you know, it was like, un, it wasn't ideal. Um, but anyway, but the point is that, that that kind of season opened my eyes and I was like, Oh, maybe I need some sort of a fallback for, um, for my cycling career because, you know, it's sort of my health was really up and down. And, uh, and so I chose, um, film, uh, like to, to study film at university, I think, Cause it was sort of straddling that idea of like what would be fun and engaging for me at school, still thinking that I was going to be a bike rider, but you know, giving myself the, the, a degree and that sort of thing. So I, I, I studied, um, I chose a, a communications, um, journalism and film major and, uh, and started going down that path. And at the same time I was racing and my interest kind of more and more were pulling me towards, I guess, you know, we, we raced a lot in Asia, we raced in Europe, um, and, and of course in Australia and, uh, and my interests were kind of being were like pulling me more and more towards the characters that I would meet surrounding the bike races I was at. Not so much like my interest didn't really lie in the, in the racing itself. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of got to, to the end of, I'd done a stint in Europe and, uh, my contract was up. And um, like Drapak wanted to renew, um, and then also Garmin, um, whatever the feeder team, the under twenty three team for, for Garmin was called at the time, fifty two eighty, I think, um, wanted me to to kind of go and race there. And I was like, you know, I kind of thought to myself for a second, like, do I really like this? You know, as I'd sort of been studying film, I realised that um, and and journalism, there's there's a way to make a living out of telling stories and I was more interested in that. And so I just said, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna renew. I'm not gonna take uh, any of these contract offers and I'm just gonna go and study and I'm gonna wow. work in TV. And, um, and which is crazy. Um, yeah, cause I and, did not expect that, that answer. Like I kind of yeah. expected you not to have any contract offers like most people and they were kind of forced out of it. No, no. So I had, I had <laughs> options and, and, um, and which was fortunate, but uh, the other, the other thing that made me leave, cause I would have like, and I was close to taking like, yeah. in hindsight, I, I sort of can't believe that I didn't take um, a contract because, you know, having known how hard it is now to like yeah. try and do what I've done. <laughs> anyway. Um, but at the same time, you know, my interest doesn't lie in, in, in racing bikes um, for a living. And so, um, I think like what one of the big motivators too was like, I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged to be able to have options on the table when, to be honest, like it, it, I hadn't 
really fulfilled my potential as an athlete. Um, in those years of racing, there'd been glimpses of it, but getting my shit together, be that getting my health together or on the other side, getting my head together. Um, because there was a lot of, you know, like, a, like sort of this mental battle that had been playing out um, for years uh, in, in my head about whether bike riding was what I wanted to do. And, but then that was all I knew. And so, Anyway, long story short was basically, I was like, well, I'd be taking up a spot on someone else who really, 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 really wants this and yeah. like really, really, really deserves a shot. Whereas I'd be taking it and I'd only be giving it 90% and it serves a hundred percent. So like that was another factor in my decision at the time. And I think that's actually what I said to, to, to traffic. I was like, I'd be taking someone else's spot. And I was like, you don't want me on the team. Like I'm not, you know, uh, how old were you I'm at not, the time? I just turned 21. 21 man like um yeah and I feel so like, i feel like i feel like cycling ages people super quick like just like almost it, it, it like, doesn't it, it doesn't it doesn't yeah like and that was one one thing like like you know you get thrown into this adult world from a really young age um and you kind of have to make you have to dedicate yourself to things um in a really um, wholehearted way, which normally as a, ch as a kid, you don't really have to, to do that. You get to kind of sample these things, but you really, I really made that decision when I was sort of 14 years of age that I was going to be a professional athlete younger even. Um, and so like, I think on, on that element, you know, you're very regimented, you're very dedicated, you're very organized, um, you're very forward thinking. But then on other, other ways, like you don't know how to, you know, like people wash your clothes, people book your flights, people yeah. like organize all of your other shit. So like all of these other areas of my life, I was like very immature in. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was areas that you're super mature in. And so <clears throat> it's sort of weird. You become kind of institutionalized um, to a degree within that world, which I think is a big issue um, in and of itself. And, uh, and uh, like in the, in the sport as a whole, um, so yeah, so I think like it's it's it is weird in that regard. I think you're both very mature, but also very immature. <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, kind of on that note, wh why did you go back? Like after your first thereabouts, you've gotten this mm -hmm. taste of just freedom on the bike. Um, where your brother's questioning even racing at the at that level ever yeah. again, even if he gets a contract, um, or even if he took a contract, turned it down. I don't know what happened in that situation, but. Mm do you so you it sounds like you left on your terms the first time which yep. many cyclists don't get to do um so then to go back do you feel like you left on your terms again or do you still feel like there's some unfinished business i guess in the professional cycling world for angus morton yeah so the reason i i went back to racing in the first place i've been given some advice i was working on a um on a pilot for a television uh, drama, which I don't know if it ever got made, to be honest, I was just um, <laughs> helping it, helping out. I was working as an edit assistant at the time and I was just helping out a director that worked in the same production company that I was working at. And, and he, he was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to be a director. And I'm like, I'm fucking going to be one, you know, real soon. And like, I was like 22 at the time. <laughs> I had no idea really what I was talking about. And, um, and anyway, he said, well, can I give you one piece of advice? And he was sort of like this old school, pretty hardcore Irish um, 
TV director and, and he'd seen some things and, um, and, and he said to you, can I give you some advice? And I said, sure. You know, in my mind, I was like, there's no way I'm taking advice. No one can give me advice. Like this yeah. usual arrogant shit when you're, when you're a kid. And he said to me, leave. He said, go away for 10 years and do anything else, but directing, but working in television. He said, cause you know, nothing. He's like, you know, nothing about what it is to live. You know, nothing about what it is to experience anything in the stories in these, in the stories that you hope to tell. He's like, if you want to tell real emotional, engaging stories, he's like, you need to be able to have empathy. You need to be able to understand where, where people are coming from. And he's like, you're not going to get that by directing. You're only going to get that by living. And so he said, so go away for 10 years, come back and then, you can be a director. He's like, but until then he's like, you're only selling yourself short. And I was sort of like, whatever. Um, and sure enough, not much, not much time passed. And I found, you know, it was within a year I found myself directing a sketch comedy show. And I, I was like, you know, you get asked the question a lot, you know, what show would you make? What do you want to make? You know, what would you, and I was like, I don't fucking know. I was like, I don't know the story that I want to tell yet. Like I don't have anything, you know, I'm learning the craft, but like, I don't have anything that I have enough conviction about that I would want to, to make, to tell. Right. I was really, I didn't have a voice. I didn't to, to his point, I didn't have experience. I didn't feel that I had the qualification to tell any one particular story uh, of my own. Right. And, um, and so, you know, I was sort of feeling that and feeling a little bit, I guess, out of my depth in that regard you know, and, and everything was going well in that, in that career trajectory, you know, um, in terms of, of where I was at and what I was sort of doing, but I didn't feel comfortable in like, you know, taking that next step and going from just someone who's hired to basically take someone else's writing and convert that, uh, onto, onto screen. And, um, and, and so anyway, so I was, yeah, you know, take that and then to do something where it's like, it's your own and you're like, you're, you're involved in all of that creative process. And so anyway, so then long story short, Lucky obviously comes along, we start writing again. And so it was a combination of me being like, uh, I need more experience in life, life experience. I need to sort of say yes to more things and kind of take, you know, these things in. And then as we got, as we got writing, I started getting good. And I started moving well and I was like, man, there's some unfinished business in cycling. I had all of these kind of hangups when I was there last time. I had like lots of issues with, with like eating um, and, and weight that had really fucked with me and, and overtraining and these other sort of hangups that a lot of young athletes develop when they're in that pressure cooker and they don't really have the, the maturity um, and the self-awareness to be able to step back and, and really observe what's going on and be like, is that, Am I doing the right thing here? Am I listening to reason? And, um, and so I was like, yeah, I've got some unfinished business and I need to experience more of the world and the opportunity to, to do that and to race alongside my brother would be amazing. And so, and he was looking to, to find a place that he fit a little bit better than, than in the world tour. And so, you know, um, we sort of put the feelers out and uh, found a team, found a team at Jelly Belly with, with Danny and, um, and Maddie and, and they, you know, they were wholeheartedly embraced 
what we wanted to do. And by that stage, the thereabouts film had come out and we had, you know, really, I had really begun to think, you know, more broadly about what the bike can be. It's not just a race machine. It's not just a performance machine. It's not just something people use to get in shape for whatever else it is that they do in their lives. It is, it is something that can really teach you about the world. Um, it can really show you and provide a perspective that you couldn't get in any other way or from anybody else. And so, you know, sort of uh, taking that perspective and then obviously the storytelling and, and, and um, you know, film perspective and wanting to, to kind of get some experience and look from the inside of the sport of, of cycling. And so, yeah, I, you know, um, trained for a year uh, whilst I was working full time and uh, on, on, on a television show. And then, you know, kind of told my bosses, I was like, Oh, I don't think you know this about me, but I used to be a, a cyclist and I've been offered a job and I'm going to go back and do that for a living. And they're like, what? You know? Uh, and so that's what I did. Um, yeah. And yeah. And then raced alongside Lockie for two years. Um, got some amazing results. We set out when we first made the when I sort of first made the decision to come back, we set out to win the tour of Colorado because that's our home race. Um, at that stage, I, my parents have been living in the U S in, in Boulder, Colorado for a long time. And we'd grown up in, in Colorado, um, spending the summers here and that was what we wanted to win. And then, you know, um, that race got canceled. Um, but the tour of Utah was also, you know, next state over. So it's, kind of the home race. And so Close that enough. was the, yeah. yeah, that was the next goal. We wanted to win tour of California and Lucky crashed out. And, and then we went to, to Utah and, and we won that race. And, and that was a real honor to be able to ride alongside Lockie in that support role. Um, and to do that and to be able to share that victory and to be able to do it in the way that we did it. Um, you know, we were down and out or he was, you know, down and out and we sort of went all in on the last stage and won that race, you know, and it came down to the entire team. It came down to thinking through um, a strategy, being nimble on the road and all these other things. And so once I executed that, it was like, okay, that's tick that box. Now what? I was like, well, maybe I can go, maybe I can get it to the world tour. And, uh, you know, I finished top 10 in like tour of Alberta and things like that. So I had some kind of semi good results, but nothing incredible. Um, and, and then in that last, so then Lockie went back to the world tour and I had one more season on my contract, uh, with Jelly Belly and, um, and dude, I just overdid it and cooked myself and, and, and really couldn't, couldn't get it out of my own way. Um, got, got really sick towards the end of the year. And then also too, like a bunch of young guys had died in racing or outside of racing. Um, and I had really begun to think about something Michael Drapak had said to me. 15 years earlier uh, or maybe not that long. That's like, like 10 years earlier, 12 years earlier when I was 16 years of age. And, uh, and he had said, Gus, what, what is the point of sport? And I was like, mate, that's, I mean, I didn't say this, but I was like, uh, you know, I don't know. It's like to inspire people. It's to, you know, oh, yeah. it's to like to, to provide a spectacle and entertainment, all these sort of things. He said, Gus, sport exists for the betterment of society. And he's like, if it doesn't serve that purpose, then it shouldn't exist. And I was sort of like, you know, at the time, kind of like, whatever, Michael, <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, yeah, right. And, and, and then, and, and, and what he was really saying there was like, that it's not about the athlete, it's about the audience. 
and it's about um, the general population. And, you know, as you probably well know, like being an athlete is very self-centered. Um, it's very self-serving and, and particularly when you get in those environments in a professional environment where it's about money, it's about victory, you know, all of a sudden you like, I sort of had this moment where I looked around at, you know, the racing that we were doing and the people and whatever I'm kind of was arguing about and whatever I'm was kind of trying to achieve. And you're like, does this really serve to benefit society? And I was like, there's absolutely no way this serves to benefit society. You know, you were looking at Chris Froome was in the Tour de France getting urine thrown on him. And you're like, how does, you like, how is this bringing people together? How is this making the world a better place? And I'm like, it's not, it doesn't. I was like, this system's broken, right? Like from a, like not even examining closely like actually how broken the sport of of cycling is be that the funding model be that like you know the governing body be that um athlete rights be that you know diversity be that like all of these things that are um you know uh, are quite clearly issues within sport um so i sort of was then like well towards the end of my towards the end of that time i was like well what are ways in which sport could potentially benefit society and like how can we explore these how can we make these case studies and that was so again had a contract um to to continue on with jelly belly um there was absolutely no interest from the world to her um and and not you know not too many other people to be honest but i had i had you know the opportunity to continue on and, and to keep racing my bike i was 28 um so i was by no means old and um and i was like do you know what guys like i would love I enjoy this. I would love to keep doing it, but I'm too comfortable here. And I, I have other things that I want to explore um, within sport that aren't this. And, you know, uh, so I, that was the birth of what, what became the outskirts series. Um, and really the idea of outskirts was my thinking was again, to, to create a case study where it's like, what, what's the antithesis um, of world tour racing? And that's, you know, that's touring by bike where there's no epic physical feat really attached to it. There's no finish line uh, and no victor. Um, and and, and uh, the purpose isn't about the riders. The purpose is about the characters and the people and the way in which the bike can introduce you to that world. So the bike really was a storytelling tool. It wasn't the story. Um, and... So that was kind of the, the the premise of that series, and then whether or not it fully lived up to that, I think in in, in its in its moments it did, uh, and then in its other moments it, it definitely didn't. Yeah. But that's for a whole number of factors, I think. Um, but the that, the original idea was to do these unsupported journeys where we would film by bike, um, and you know, and that's where the, the partnership came with Rafa, um, Specialized, and Envy, and. Uh, Wahoo and a few other brands that really bought into that 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 way of thinking, um, and and to be honest, I think it was it's it's really far out there in terms of of like the traditional, I guess. It's so um, far out there, like I messaging, like you guys, like between you, Taylor Finney. I mean, you had every seventeen and eighteen year old wearing flannels on rides, and I literally <laughs> listened to a podcast the other day of uh, Cameron Morph you know yeah, giving you a rough time about showing up to a ride <laughs> with you and uh garon thomas 
Like, yeah. I, think, I, think that, I think that's hilarious. It's like, it's like, yeah, yeah, you want to come ride with Garon Thomas and, and me? Yeah, yeah, sure. And you, I just picture you showing up in just a t-shirt and some, you know, black shorts and just like, where are we, where are we meeting this guy? And that's the guy. Yeah, that was funny. That's awesome. And, and, and so, so diving into that, like you, you've, you've cultivated this, I would like to say culture, which is very beautiful for the sport because it's kind of relaxed people a bit um, with, with that. And I, I think it's opened up a model in the sport of cycling to, to kind of be a little bit more welcoming. And I think gravel culture has that. I think um, little parts of cycling has that, but thereabouts and outskirts has definitely opened that. Um, I mean, how do you go about um, picking the crew? I mean, every crew that you've had has been, has been great. I mean, with Jacob Rath and like, I mean, between you and your brother and like, I mean, it's just, it's a cool, like you have a cool wide group of people. So how do you, how do you kind of go about that? Yeah. So that's a good, that's a good question. Like with the, so the first film that we made, it was about Lockie and I, Yeah. we didn't really intend that to be. And, and that was a very weird experience. You know, like I had kind of dedicated my life to being behind camera yeah. and kind of found myself on it. And, you know, I think there's value in that story. Um, but after that, I was like, holy shit, like we'd had this experience. Like, let's, like, let's get people on and then make it about them. And we like host this, this interaction and we like unpack these characters over the course of these endurance rides. And, um, and, and we introduce them to these, these people that they would never normally talk to. And as a result of that, they start thinking about themselves and their place in, in, in the world and all of these other things. And so that was, that was Camworth and, and Taylor Finney. And then, um, and then the third one was about Columbia and, and, and about going down and, and, and meeting the cycling characters of, of Columbia and kind of looking into to that space a little bit. And then with Outskirts, I really wanted it to be like, cause it's sort of like, where do you go from there? You know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and it really then became about like, well, again, the antithesis, I'm like all of these brands and these, um, and this, this industry is really concerned with like, like who's winning and like these characters and, and what's your, you know, what's your pedigree and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to make, I want to show that like, you know, people that you've never heard of can be, can be the central characters. And I want, you know, that to be the point, these people that you've never heard of, I want you to kind of be able to, to engage with them and, and to sort of use the name thereabouts to lure people in and then kind of demonstrate that like, that, you know, these, that anybody can have these experiences and that, and that everybody does have these experiences and uh, on the bike. And so that was really the motivation behind that, the first outskirts. And then the second outskirts, you know, it was, we'd had like a, quite a wide range of, of people and we were looking very far reaching and, and ultimately, you know, you've got obligations to sponsors and bits and pieces like that. So that kind of, you know, guided the kind of characters that we were able to bring um which it is you know that's like a a a a fact of you know those sort of relationships and that's fine um so that led us to to rathy and to dan craven um who are absolute legends and and really interesting characters and i also think too like even within 
the cycling world and the racing world like are two characters that I think are very interesting and are very valuable, um, but aren't necessarily like that A-list type type character. So I think from my perspective is um, at least with those with those films, it was about finding characters that I'd had an interaction with at one point or another, or like someone had told me about that. I'm like, wow, maybe they would be, maybe that would be, maybe they would provide a unique perspective on the sport um, and be a really interesting guest in their interaction with the people that we, you know, come across and meet. So like in that regard, it's very much, um, yeah, it's very much just like, you know, who, who do we find interesting that's, there's no real criteria, I guess, uh, if I think about it. Your email um, is going to blow up after this, you know? Yeah, just, like, and look, we, like, want to we be do. a part of it. And we do, and we have, like, and it's funny, like, you know, from all sorts of levels. And, and to be honest, like, when it comes to this, this sort of thing, like, I'm, I'm most comfortable and I'm most intrigued by um, the the people that you've never heard of, the characters that like, whether, you know, that you meet sitting at the bar or that you meet like at the gas station, outside the gas station or at your hotel in the morning before you ride off. Like that's who fascinates me. Like we've all heard the A-list of stories and, and yeah. there's a hundred outlets that do that and do it well. So it's sort of like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not as interested in telling those stories um, of, of those characters. I'm more interested in like these random people, these everyday people. Um, and, and so like, for me, that's, to be honest, like where my heart goes, um, with, with these sort of things is like, who are those, who are those people that we can have along, um, potentially and, uh, and, you know, that can provide a novel, um, perspective on the sport or on, on, you know, two wheel travel that we haven't thought of before. Well, well, that being said, you know, who's someone on the road, like not cyclist. I mean, you know, we, if you guys want to go check out these, these, uh, these documentaries, I'll put a link in the description below, but um, not a cyclist, but who, who is somebody that you've met on the road that you'll never forget? Because that was one favorite thing that I loved about outskirts. When you guys were doing the long trek, you would just run into this random gent at a bar and he would, you know, he, I think there was one guy who just had tattoos of like road signs yeah route 66 yeah it's a wild yeah, it's man, a route 66 you know? man yeah and so like who 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 is somebody that you've met on the road that you're just like this this is the reason why i do this i'll never forget this person yeah he's he's one of them um and and i think like for for listeners it's the gentleman that drives the old chevy with the route 66 he's covered in tattoos of route 66 he's got hundreds of them i can't remember the number off the top of my head but his whole body's covered in them um, and he's a Vietnam War vet. Um, wow. and, and, and he sticks in my mind because he was clearly, you know, in the film, he, he, he breaks down, uh, came back from a war, you know, obviously all the controversy, controversy surrounding the Vietnam War. Right. And, and he's undiagnosed PTSD. Right. And the way he treats it is driving around 66 and getting these tattoos and, and being this character on the road. And that's like both really heartbreaking um, and, you know, and, and, and well, it is, it's just, it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking because there's yeah. this character that can't find his, um, couldn't kind of deal with, with these things that he's been through. And the way that he does that is by traveling route 66, by being um, a character of that road of the, of that, you know, of that American dream, which is 
you know, been in decay for, for longer than it's been in existence. And, and so like, you know, he, he, he's a character. There's another, um, another family that, that took us in, um, in Missouri, one of them, uh, which I don't think he was ever on camera. Um, but one of the gentlemen, uh, one of the, the members of the family, the eldest one was on the Supreme court for 23 years and, uh, and oversaw, um, uh, was like one of the litigators on a uh, on a class action against a mining company that uh, to do with water water contamination uh, and and the birth defects that uh, a portion of these sort of lower socioeconomic communities had suffered and so like you know like those those sort of stories are the ones that stick with me because like just everybody has these rem- everybody has a remarkable story that until you meet them you c- couldn't conceive. Um, and so like, you know, and then there's the, the alien, right. The guy that, that was, um, that, you know, was a former drug, drug cop, you know, then became like, uh, uh, was an alcoholic, uh, is homeless, um, and became, you know, and, li- and lives on the road and he's kind of like all about spreading the positivity, but also too moonlighted for a period there as like a psychedelics mushroom. Uh, farmer and like you know so like like those sort of characters like just total misfits and total like um you know just total characters that exist and that like i said can kind of provide a a perspective on the world that up until that point you had never really you couldn't have conceived um so yeah i think like you know though though like it's it's those sort of characters you know it's um yeah, I mean, it's it's all of them to a degree because all of all of those stories imprint upon you, right? Part of them travels with you as part of you is like left behind yeah. uh, with them, and and all of them contribute to forming your your opinion, and and that's what I think is the most beautiful part of a bike is the ability to introduce you to these characters that have vastly opposing points of view. Uh, on politics or on social matters, but you are able to, as a result of the bike, find some level of common ground, you know, and, and that facilitates a conversation. And I think that that's a really, that's a really important thing, right? Yeah. Like, I think that's one of the, the biggest issues that we face right now. Speaking of, of, of community and, and what is community anymore. And anyway, I think that, um, that that ability to converse with people that that have wildly like wildly opposing or just differing uh, points of view or just these off the wall kind of perspectives on things that like I said you couldn't really think of um, and 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 so that's yeah for me that's the most beautiful thing about the sport of cycling is is the ability to facilitate those conversations um, yeah. Yeah, and and that and that's amazing. I mean, you you've essentially packed around anywhere from you know a couple of days and two three weeks into a forty five minute video, um, and, and you guys are probably trying to meet sponsor obligations and trying not to post anything too crazy. But um, this is an unfiltered podcast, um, yeah. and and I know there's got to be some crazy stories that may have not have made it into the film cut. Um, is there any crazy stories that you can think about that you know? Would that, I guess, wouldn't get you in too much trouble. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, honestly, like I was thinking about that. Yeah. And um, and like, there's nothing like, 
we've been fortunate that there's nothing that hasn't been able to be really included any included in any of the films. Certainly yeah. a lot of characters like don't make the cut because they just like the conversation doesn't translate on screen mm-hmm. or there's sort of no place to put it. Um, so like, I mean, uh, like there was one night we're in, like in terms of a, like in terms of a crazy story, um, yeah. like I guess like a bizarre story was one night we were in, um, in Grand Junction, Colorado, actually. And, uh, and we we're having a drink at a bar and like a, a bar fight broke out around us. And then, and then like that bar fight, like it stopped and then another one broke out. So they closed the bar and then we sort of met these people and ended up like walking through the suburbs of Grand Junction to find to this person's house where we drank this wacky moonshine <laughs> um, that like, you know, that then we left like uh, after, I don't know, like a while there and we couldn't find our way home and we didn't get home until like four in the morning. We had 180 Ks to ride the next day. Oof. And like that moonshine gave us the, the most savage hangover. <laughs> like it gives me chills thinking about it and just having to go and ride. So like those sort of, like, I guess those sort of things, you know, like, like we didn't have a camera with us then. And those are the sort yeah. of things that, that happen on the road. And like, um, you know, I sort of like, I guess like that's, you know, it's not very wild, but, but that's probably, probably it. I mean, and then, yeah, like I said, the, the people who, um, who you meet, uh, I think in the first film, um, Rusty was like one of the first characters that we met. Um, and he, he's the old bloke, um, in the first thereabouts film with the kind of, you know, like weathered hat and he's sort of sitting in his backyard and he speaks real slow like this. And, and, and his story, like he had pancreatic cancer and he had never traveled to, to Melbourne and he was in his late sixties and, or maybe in his seventies. And, you know, he had to travel further than he never traveled in his life to get treatment for this cancer. And, and, you know, just the experience of doing that. And then, you know, like as a result, he'd become, you know, he's a, he's a farmer and he, as a result of going down and being told that he needed to get pancreatic surgery, he was like, hang on a minute. That doesn't sound right. Like cutting a piece out of me. So he did some research, you know, found other treatments, alternative treatments for, for that particular type of cancer. He became a vegetarian, I think almost vegan. And, and he did all of these things that like you would never expect a person like that to do. Wow. And, and it worked, he was in remission. Um, and so, you know, I think like, like those are the sort of, I guess, the stories that, that you can never translate on camera right to tell yeah. that story would take would take an hour in its own in its yeah. own right and, and and take time and you've got 20 minutes or 30 minutes with these people as you as you pass them by um so i guess for me those are the the the, the things that don't make it that are kind of the most wild um is, oh, yeah. is probably the, the full story of these characters that's interesting and yeah and and, and so to kind of kind of switch gears a little bit um kind of what turned me on to trying to get you onto this podcast uh we had a guest who pretty much was wanting to come out about their depression um, mm-hmm. in a form. And, and like um, you did a physio podcast with Mark Cavendish where you guys kind of open up a little bit on the forefront mm. about uh, mental health and, and this guy, I mean, it, that one podcast 
it sounds like it changed his life. Scott Law, which you probably yeah, know. I know Scotty Law for a long time. Yeah, yeah, so Australian as Since well. And, kids, yeah. And he, uh, yeah, we Good we got to chatting, and he was like, "Man, you got to listen to it. You got to check it out." And I listened to it, and it, it kind of even made me think. You know, it was kind of one of those things where I knew I had bits of depression. We've talked about it. We've had this, mm. but um, once you listen to somebody else talk about it too, it makes you rethink a little bit about you um, and a little bit about the things that you you try so hard to mask up. So um, I guess more or less, like, what are some of your, what are some of your things that you think the professional ranks and the uh, amateur ranks could be doing to kind of help curb this depression in cycling? Cause it seems so deep and so heavy right now. It is. And I think, I mean, that's a really good question. And like, it's a, it's a big question. Yeah. Um, and that's something, you know, in the last few years that, I've been looking at and, and it goes back to what I said about um, the role of sport in society. And I think that's something that we, we really need to examine. Like if you go back to Pierre de Coubertin and, and the Olympism movement, um, the modern, the modern Olympic games, the role of, of, you know, what he saw those games playing in society, which is to educate, to unite, um, to uplift society and to, and, and uh, basically to advance society. And, and if you fast forward, you know, to now, arguably, you know, does, like does professional sport advance society? Um, and so anyway, so I think like there is a fundamental, um, there's a fundamental uh, question about where sport is at right now that I think needs to be had. Like the reality of being able to alter that, I think is... Um, to be able to change that like is, is unrealistic. Um, and it's actually like, I have this book here. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment called small is beautiful by EF Schumacher. And it's a study of economics as if people mattered. So this book was written in, in the seventies. Um, and to read it now is quite frightening. Um, but there's like a, there's a page in here, uh, actually, which I want to, that's got me thinking. Let me just find my phone. Yeah, yeah you're good, man. <laughs> um, I just want to grab because because I took a photo of it. I'm never going to find the page in that book. One second. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I wanted to find this because um, this like this question reminds me of something I read um, in this book. So he like essentially talks about like modern economics um, and the idea that uh, the pursuit of infinite wealth um or infinite advancement like not putting a cap on like what we need to be satisfied is essentially damaging um damaging society like in a very major way and, and i think sport like is a really interesting um like it's a really interesting um sorry i'm just trying to find this sport fits into that essentially where like i guess by pursuing performance and by pursuing victory and in that like there being no um upper limit on how much success you can have or should have or should want or should pursue yeah um is basically like you know corrupting the entire system because obviously when when money becomes involved in these things and there is a pursuit um to, to more is better um the athletes tend to go from being human beings to being, I guess, commodities um, in this, in this um, 
in this structure. So like our infinite pursuit of performance, we've neglected the thing that actually makes sport great, which is the humans, which is these characters. Like if sport was about, like if sport was about proving how fast um, human beings could cover the distance of a hundred meters, then we'd use some sort of technology, right? That's like, you know, some sort of technology that can travel faster than the speed of, of light, right? It's like, it's like pursuing the extreme technological advancement, but sport isn't about that. Um, it's about living, breathing human beings um, that are, you know, pursuing and, 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 and doing the things they are, uh, I guess, the best at. And I feel like what's happening is we're dehumanizing these things. So we're, we're removing the human being um, from these pursuits, you know, uh, and, and we're kind of discounting the personality and I think that that's like where the issue becomes, because then, you know, it begs the question of like, well, what's the point of this? You know, what are we, what are we really doing? And I don't necessarily think I'm articulating that quite so well, but the point I'm trying to make is I think the issue, like is, it stems from basically the nature of professional sport at the moment. And the idea that human beings are a commodity in this and that your individualism uh, is, isn't important. The thing that actually makes you human, the personality, you know, your ability to think and to have your own opinions and all of those things are being removed. Right. And, and it's more important to follow a scientific structure, you know, to listen to these, um, to these mechanical pieces of technology that we add to our, that we add to our human beings, like we're essentially right. Cyborgs. Um, in order to, to, to pursue performance. And I think that that's where, we're, where we've gone wrong is that we're trying too hard to eliminate the human being from these pursuits. And so what happens to young athletes and old athletes, you know, as we saw with, with uh, Mark Cavendish, right? He's, he's really experienced depression towards the end of his career, um, not, at the, not at the beginning, right? And I think, so I think that fundamental nature of what we're pursuing is sort of fucking us up. Yeah. Um, and so like, how do you neglect, like, how do you, do you, how does the, how does sport in its current model address that? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think the first thing it needs to do is it needs to talk about it. It needs to acknowledge that it exists and then it needs to seek counsel on the best way to address those. It needs to put people in place and there are sports psychs and there are these type of characters, but, I don't think they're doing enough in terms of calling the system out. They're not doing enough in terms of providing, you know, more than just words of, of advice for these athletes. And I think so. So I think like that's, you know, I think we need to have those structures in place. I also think that it comes down to these people, these funding bodies, funding bodies, these um, like sponsors and the people that are providing money need to, recognize and there's huge potential like to leverage the character of, of athletes over just their performance you know in a in in a sport where there's or in all sport but like there's hundreds of athletes it like sport rewards like the very least possible amount of people that it has to yeah you know it rewards the person who crosses the finish line first that's the least amount of people that it can possibly reward right and so i think like by showcasing you know and, and if you look at what ef are doing with the alternate program um and i'm sort of speaking more specifically to cycling here i think because that's sort of what i know best um 
but they're sort of showcasing the character of these athletes and, and their unique perspectives and their kind of accumulated knowledge um, and experience. And they're, and they're allowing them to have that voice and to voice and to showcase those sort of, those sort of things. And so I think, and, and it's, and then they've demonstrated that there's an audience for that. So I think sponsors putting money behind the characters um, and, and really valuing the human being behind the, the performance. Um, and and then, you know, I think, so I think that's a big thing. And then I also think too, like um, having people in place to help athletes begin to transition out of their careers. Mm. Cause I think one thing that's really hard that athletes face is you go all in, right? You're like, I'm going all in on this and you don't, you know, you might be making 20 grand a year. You might be making 10 grand a year. You might be paying your way at a yeah. shot and the pressure that that has on you you know, is huge. And you've got to forego all these other things. You've got to forego education. You've got to forego um, work, right? You've got to forego like developing any sort of a backup for, for, for a majority of people. And, and so therefore like you kind of, you're then stuck and it's like, well, this is all I've got. This is all I can do. Um, and so I think there needs to be right from the get go, you know, someone there for athletes to be able to go, okay, I know that you're 20 and you've got potentially 20 years of cycling ahead of you, but you know, there's the Anything potential that there won't be. Yeah. And yeah. exactly right. And, and also too, like not only that, but like, I think like, cause that's like the idea that being like, Oh, you could have an injury and, mm. and that ends your career. But it was like, what if you wake up one morning and you decide that you don't want to do this anymore? Like no one talks about that. So I think like showcase, like showing athletes that there is a way out and that there is another way to participate in sport that can be as fulfilling, but it might not be your career or all that sort of thing. Um, that's so fun. That's yeah. so funny that you put it like that because I remember when I came into the sport super late and mm -hmm. I came in at the age of like 19, 20, and I started to surround myself with these pro cyclists who are about the same age as me. So I'm a cat five. I'm hanging out with guys on Hinkapi and all this stuff. And yeah. I want to be them. And I'm yep. looking at, I'm looking up to these other cyclists too, that I want to be, and I want to be these athletes. And then I get to know them and I get to mm. really know them. And I see them about to lose their job. And mm. then I see them lose their job. And I see what they're doing now or what they did when they lost their job, just waking up at 11. Like, and it didn't really click with me. I was just like, what, like, what are they doing? These are some of the best cyclists. I've ever, like, what, how, how can they do this? And I, I didn't really put into perspective what they did before and like how, mm. what it took to get there and how hard it is to be at this level. And then all of a sudden it's gone. Yeah. With no plan. Um, no backup, no school. Uh, some of them homeschooled in high school. So social aspects and interviewing aspects are gone. I mean, and that was one thing that, and it's going to be really shitty, but me and my wife at the time, she was my girlfriend. But when we were going in and hang out with these people, we'd go to parties or functions when they would talk to girls or just other individuals. We were just like, bro, what, what is happening here? And it, it's something that I never knew. Cause I was a football player. I was a wrestler. I was in high school. I was in a thousand person school. And so I, I think that even goes back in, in which if you guys haven't listened to the podcast with Fabian Kinchelar, that's what he's trying to do as well, mm. which is amazing. And that's like, exactly. It's like figuring out. And that, I mean, that's, that's the thing is like, 
like your professional career is only a small part of your life. Yeah. And also too, like it shouldn't be who you are. It shouldn't define you. Mm -hmm. You know, it can define part of you. It can define a period of your life. Absolutely. But like the idea that that is all you are is so reductive and really, and really sad. And that's where sport is at because that's what it requires. It requires you to be homeschooled. It requires you to like, you know, go all in and it requires you to, to move countries to sacrifice all of these other elements that are really vital to learning, like conversation, like debate, like all of those things that you get, you know, just by virtue of participating in society more broadly, you know, when you've got to train and you've got this regiment and you've got to eat a certain way, you know, going out to a restaurant, um, like going and hanging out with friends at a barbecue, you know, going for a hike, you know, staying up late one night, like all of those things become a burden mm -hmm. because it's like, Oh, I'm taking away. Like me being here right now is actually taking away from my ability to win the tour de France in five years time, potentially yeah. when it's not. Um, but nor like, you know, but like it should, that shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. Um, and it is. And, and, and look like it was always going to be that when, as I said before, when our pursuit is infinite, you know, like um, when the pursuit of victory is, is infinite and it's never ending and there's no sort of like cap on, on, on what is deemed successful, you know, you can always be more successful and that's, and that's a noble pursuit. And it's not, it shouldn't be that way. There should be, you know, all of these other factors um, and all of these other, you know, elements that fit into that. And I, you know, I would argue that like sport now, like it's, it's reaching a point where it's to its detriment. And I think, you know, like the number of people that talk about, oh, world tour, world tour cycling is, is boring and like they need to do something to kind of change the format or let's eliminate, you know, power meters or like all those things. You're like, no, that's not what's going to fix the sport. It's like, we need to care about it. Mm -hmm. I need to care, right? Like, um, I'm just trying to think of like, uh, you know, like, I guess, you know, there's, there's examples throughout history in sport. Like you think of, of like Eddie Merckx and Fausto Coppi and like all these things and like Eddie Merckx's victories were amazing, but like he's equally as famous for his wacky training and like the wacky things that he said and like, you know, the kind of like experimentation and the things that he would do. That's what made him a character. That's what made him larger than life. Yeah. And, and I think that that's being like, to a degree, um, it's not even being stifled. Like it is being stifled, sorry. It is being stifled like kind of directly by how media trained athletes are, what they can and can't talk about. Like, but I still think there is wiggle room for character to come through. But I just think by virtue of what the sport requires of you, it kills those things off. Yeah. You know, like, so anyway, so I think like, you know, if like anyone who's pursuing the sport at, that absolute top level, like I would always encourage them to try to balance that some way, right? Try to maintain a friendship group that don't know anything about the sport of cycling, have mentors, right? Like have people that you can reach out to that you can ask for advice, have people that, you know, like that value you for you and not for your cycling result. And they, and they encourage you and they push you to do things that you don't necessarily want to do. Um, and like, you know, cause I think it's about trying to find a balance there and that's not easy. Um, and then, like I said, on the sporting side, I think they really need to pony up. Um, they need to have a union 
you know, that's actually effective. They need to have um, a fucking pension that actually can pay out that isn't mismanaged by a bunch of incompetent fools. And they also need to have programs like that uh, of, of former Olympic rower Gerard Toey, which is which transition athletes out of sport and they start transitioning them about years before they do. Because I can tell you, man, like having stopped sport twice, um, you just like you go from doing something, you go from having a goal every day. My goal is five hours and I've got to do these three intervals in it. And if I do that, my day is a success. There's no other job. There's no other vocation that has such clearly defined goals. Yeah. So you go and find a job and I don't know, like you, you're working through the day and you get to the end of the day and you're like, did I complete everything I could have completed? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Can I give today a green light or is it still a red light or is it like an amber light? And, and that's really, that, that's really hard Yeah. because you go from being, having all of these affirmations throughout your day, you ate well, you know, you did this, you did this, you did like, okay, I've done it all. Whereas when you come out to the real world, things aren't black and white like that. And so it's really hard to adapt. And I don't think, um, I don't think athletes are trained to be able to do that. Like you hear of athletes now that their teams, their teams, plan out their daily schedule like you eat at this time and then you need to wait x number and then you train and you train this way and then you do this and like and like so they don't have to even think about what to eat when to eat do anything what happens to that person when they retire that's wild you know like yeah you don't know how you like it sounds stupid but like you know you're like well, if i don't have to eat oatmeal for breakfast what do i eat yeah you know well, I, and, I thought it, yeah, it's funny so. that you mentioned that because it was Alex Howes. Um, he made a comment about, I think, some French team that he rode for um, where they measured out the food that he had in a race. And they that was yeah. it. That's what they decided. That's what you're eating during the race. You don't get any hungrier during the race. And you eat that, yeah. you eat that. And like that to me is like, that is scary. Like not even on the front of of body dysmorphia and and eating disorders but also on the front of the fact that you are now thinking what the rider is going to need and that to me is very scary but i do we're taking up a ton of your time and i don't want to hold you up too long so i want to get one last segment in and this is this is the big one um do this every week with every guest um if you could have coffee with one individual who would that be dead or alive how would you take your coffee and why? So this is a tough one, right? Yeah. So like, uh, I had to give this some thought, um, to be honest, but like, so I thought about this and I thought, well, most of the people I admire or look up to, like, I don't know if I'd actually want to have coffee with them. Whoa. Right. Really? Like think about this. Like, what do you say to Stanley Kubrick over coffee? Right. So Stanley Kubrick film director made yeah. films like eyes wide shot 2001, the shine, like, like what do you like? What do you like? What are you asking, right? So it's like he made the film The Shining, and and he he said uh, after he made that film that The Shining is is a film that's meant to be both that's meant to be watched both forward and backward. And so it's like, what do you say? Like, oh, can you break that down for me? And you've got until the end of this piccolo latte to yeah. do that, right? <laughs> anyway, or like Nelson Mandela, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. Nelson Mandela, speak about the role of of sport in a post-apartheid. South yeah. Africa, right? And by the way, you know, you've got 30 mils of espresso to to break that down. So, so like, <laughs> and, and like, you know what I mean? Like, it's intimidating yeah, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Like, oh, yeah, for but, sure. 
so anyway, so all of that, th th those are two people I would definitely like to do that, but like, I don't know if I would have the courage to, but one person, 100% <clears throat> that I would love to have been able to have sat down and had coffee with is Anthony Bourdain. Okay. Um, he was, his, his death hit me really hard um, and I very much looked up, up to him. Um, I think, you know, incredible human, humanitarian, wonderfully flawed champion. Um, and I see, I guess I see the role of sport much like he saw the role of food yeah. um, as a way to help us understand the world, um, as a way to, you know, bring people together and to learn and to educate and to kind of break down barriers. Um, and so, yeah, for me, I think like really, you know, yeah, like he, he saw food um, in, in the way that I see sport. And, and so he, was, he is someone that I really feel like I could just sit down and, and have a chinwag with over a cup of coffee. And that would be, um, and that would be amazing. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. So how would you take your coffee? Are you just kind of like whatever? Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a drip, drip, yeah. drip coffee, dark roast, the burnt, the better. Um, <laughs> right and, uh, and in a larger, in a larger cup. A big cup. A That's big very cup American of you, man. That's it is. It is. American. I used to be. I used Not to be very a coffee bolder. wank. Yeah. I used to be a coffee wank. Uh, you know, as many a bike rider are, you don't have much, you know, much else to do but think about uh, what sort of coffee you're going to order. And uh, but you know, since I've lived in the states, uh, there's a, there's a level of nostalgia. I have a very strong affection for roadside diners. Waffle House uh, coffee, baby. And for the people you meet there. And so I think, uh, you know, for me, every sip of a, uh, you know, a house brew is, uh, brings me back, takes me back to, uh, that's to, awesome, to some of my fondest memories. So yeah, that's, that's me. That's awesome. Well, Gus, thank you so much, man, for jumping on the podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm super stoked about this. And uh, yeah, guys, uh, all the links to his uh, podcast, the uh, Fizzo podcast with uh, Bobby Ulick is going to be in the link description below, as well as Outskirts, Thereabouts, and his social media. So be sure to check that out. Other than that, guys, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.